Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 64, Galileo of Horror. Grizzly greetings, mortals. Do not adjust your podcast engine. We are in control. I am the Titan of Terror, Goroth Horrorons. And I'm the Sultan of Scream, Tomb Chilliamson. And welcome to the other side, the plane of torment known only in whispers as Retrospecticus, The Simpsons, Modern History and Bone-Chilling Horror, together for eternity. In each blood-curdling edition, we'll discuss an eerie episode of The Simpsons and a major hist horror happening from the time the episode first scared in the boo-ess. You'll ghoul where we ghoul. Get frogurt when we get frogurt. Mix women and seamen when we mix women and seamen. <laughs> Sorry, it's not persistent. It's not persistent. And today I'll be looking at Season 4, Episode 5, Treehouse of Horror 3, which first aired on October the 29th, 1992. And I'm taking a break from the horrors of African civil wars and talking about the life of Galileo Galilei, because on October the 31st, 1992, two days after Treehouse of Horror 3 first aired, Pope John Paul II issued an apology to him. I'll be talking about some science history, so I'm right back in my comfort zone. If you'd like to give us the Spanish ectoplasm, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore or be damned for all time. Or send us an electric eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. So we've not done one of these for a while. Um, and the simple reason for that is that uh, nature is healing, life is slowly returning, and I've forgotten how to manage a calendar. <laughs> well, as you may be able to hear from the sound quality... We are actually back in the lighthouse recording live in front of each other because coronavirus restrictions in the UK have eased somewhat. Uh, I've been down to Norfolk for a little break. Um, We haven't got the windows open, even though it's rather hot, so we might be interrupted by seagulls. We may not. Excellent. And very, very good it is to be back doing this again. Because as much as we did adapt, I think, very well to uh, COVID restrictions and using our headsets and Skype and so on and so forth, Skype is not the most reliable recorder of things, and we did lose a little bit of material over the last year or so. We did, and I don't have to worry about editing out my squeaky chair either. (laughs) It's all good. Things can only get better, as they said back in the day, but that was five years after this. Uh-huh. When was that again? It was October the 29th, 1992. But Goreth, I hear you howl. What banshee whale topped ye British charts that week? Well, it's Booze to Mean with Rend of the Toad. That's that's Boys to Men with End of the Road. That's, that's what that is. Ah, right. But who were those bad boys? Why, it's Michael McCary, Nathan Morris, Wanya Morris, and Sean Stockman. All from Philadelphia, PA. They formed the group in high school. After impressing New Editions' Michael Bivins, he produced their first album, Cooley High Harmony, with no spaces, which was released on no lesser label than Motown in 1991. He helped to nurture their harmony-driven hip-hop doo-wop sound. 
After touring with MC Hammer on his Too Legit To Quit tour, and yes, you better believe both those twos were the number two, which was an experience which saw their tour manager get murdered, they took a very brief break to record a song for the soundtrack of the 1992 Eddie Murphy movie Boomerang. And that track was End of the Road. Number one in the Billboard Hot 100 for a then-record-breaking 13 weeks. And also the number one song of 1992 in that chart. It also reached the top spot in Australia, New Zealand, Ireland, the Netherlands, and of course, the UK. As drippy as it sounded then, and indeed sounds now, this song defined the sound of American R&B pop singles for years to come afterwards. And the group's success speaks for itself. 13 albums, including a Christmas album, (laughs) four Grammys, only the third act ever to replace themselves at number one in the Billboard Hot 100, and the prior two, Elvis Presley and the Beatles. Wow. Elvis Presley, the Beatles, and Boys to Men. (laughs) What can you say? Well, they were huge back then. They were absolutely enormous. But Boys to Men touring with MC Hammer. Boy, I would have liked to have seen that. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's um, parachute fantastic right there. Will there ever have been a tour more day glow? <laughs> the US viewership for this episode was a Nielsen of 14.7, which is equivalent to 13.7 million viewing households. It was 20th for the week. Those are some big jumps, which suggest that this was starting to take hold as a Halloween tradition. It was the highest rated show on Fox for the first time in a few weeks. The production number is 9F04, and the writers were paired for each segment. You have Al Jean and Mike Reese, as we discussed in episode 4. There's no disgrace like Manuel Noriega. They did the first segment. Then there's Jay Kogan and Wallace Wolodarski from episode 3, The Morris Worms Odyssey, and they did the second. And the slightly odder couple of John Vitti from episode 2, Bart the Storming of the Stars EHQ, and Sam Simon from episode 1, Simpsons Roasting on a Romanian Revolution. They did the third segment. So it's a killer's row of early episode writers there. And in fact, all the writers for the first four episodes of The Simpsons full stop were involved in this, uh, this episode. But what actually happens? Well, The Simpsons are going to warn us that there are some crybabies out there, religious types mostly, who might be offended and tell them to turn off the TV. Having got rid of those chickens, we're good to go through Springfield Cemetery once again, where we find gravestones for Drexel's class, R. Buckminster Fuller, with an I'm with stupid gravestone pointing at it, slapstick and American workmanship, the last of which crumbles. The couch gag is that the family are skeletons, and Marge has a lovely Bride of Frankenstein stripe in her hair. This year's framing device is a Halloween costume party at the Simpsons' house, featuring Bart as Alex from A Clockwork Orange, as I discussed not long ago. When the games go awry due to Homer eating all the witch's body parts, it's time to switch to scary stories, the first of which is Clown Without Pity, as told by Lisa Simpson. Homer, to the surprise of no one, hasn't remembered Bart's birthday, and he is desperate for a last-minute gift, especially after Grandpa gifts him a box of government money. Stopping apparently solely at House of Evil, your one-stop evil shop, he settles on a forbidden object from a place men fear to tread. Although the shop also sells frozen yoghurt, which the shopkeeper calls frogget. This particular object takes the form of a talking crusty doll, but Tom, 
What else is on the shelf with that doll? There's a shrunken head, which is 20% rail. There's a cat with two heads. Is there something in a jar? There is. There is, but I can only really give you a point if you get the item in the jar. Oh. What was it? We did a watch of this a few minutes ago as well. Um, oh, I'm trying to think. It's... Is it a plant of some sort? It is not, I'm afraid. It's a still-beating heart. Oh, of course it is. Why on earth did I think it was a plant? I've spent too long in my garden, that's why. <laughs> Homer is warned that the object carries a terrible curse. That's bad. But it comes with a free frogut. Oh, that's good. The frogut is also cursed. That's bad. But he gets his choice of topping. That's good. The toppings contain potassium benzoate. Now, seeing as I've got a background in biochemistry, I can say that that's bad. Excellent. <laughs> you can go now. <laughs> Bart loves his present, but Grandpa senses the evil, or just wants attention, one of the two. It's not Bart who feels its wrath. The doll begins to say some very unusual phrases before coming to life and attacking Homer. First with a knife on the sofa, then a harpoon in the bath, causing the sight of a nude Homer to rob Patty of the last lingering thread of her heterosexuality. A statement I think we were meant to forget when she came out of the closet 13 seasons later. Mm. The crusty doll takes a break to romance Lisa's Malibu Stacy, and Homer captures it and hurls it into a bottomless pit. Along with the body of a mafioso, but not nude pictures of Whoopi Goldberg, which the pit rejects. However, the doll has cape-feared itself to the bottom of Homer's car, and tries to drown him in the dog bowl. Marge finally calls the consumer helpline, and an engineer discovers that the doll's very visible good or evil switch has been set to evil, and handily resets it, leaving the doll to a fate worse than death, becoming Homer's servant. Back to the party, and Homer is failing to tell a coherent ghost story. Luckily, Grandpa's got a story, plucked not from his uninteresting life, but from the silver screen. Behold, King Homer. Marge answers a personal ad placed by Mr. Burns and Smithers, who are leading a team of crude and uncouth sailors, including Carl, Lenny and Charlie, out to mysterious Ape Island, though the crew would rather go to Candy Apple Island, where they still have apes, but they're not as big. Burns is after King Homer, a 50-foot ape for whom Marge will act as the bait... Uh, the bait-thing beauty, the bathing beauty. He covered that well. The islanders immediately decide to sacrifice the blue-haired woman, and Homer, fresh off a painful dinosaur wound, is duly hooked in and gassed, having first eaten Lenny. Burns' plan is to show the eighth wonder of the world, we've had this one before, it's Andre the Giant, in theatres, and rake in the cash, which he'll later try to do with the Loch Ness Monster in a canonical episode, but hopefully we'll have finished the podcast before we get to that one, because it's drivel. <laughs> King Homer is driven mad by the flashbulbs of the press and runs amok through downtown Springfield. Eventually he is defeated not by combat biplanes, as is tradition, but by his lack of exercise, plummeting weakly to the pavement after climbing about three storeys. But there's a happy ending as Marge has fallen for him and we get the world's first human and ape wedding. Oh. Just time for a quick jump back to the party, where Marge is ill-advisedly serving up an array of fresh fruit in lieu of candy, having apparently forgotten that you don't win friends with fruit salad. <laughs> then a headless zombie bursts into the room. 
but it's just Flanders, who has once again over-delivered with the holiday spirit. It's a good lead into Bart's story, though. Dial Z for zombies. Or probably Z, because it was an American show. Yeah. At Springfield Elementary, Edna orders Bart to find another book to do a report on after he tries to get away with using Baby's First Alphabet for the task. I would have liked to have heard him try to spin that out to a full presentation myself, but here we are. After discovering that Waldo just isn't trying anymore, he wanders off the beaten track and into the school library's surprisingly well-resourced occult section, and is literally struck by the Time Life Book of Magic and Spells Volume 2. Lisa is unimpressed by his remarkable find, as it is the anniversary of Snowball 1's death. But Bart's got a spell for that, and it's back to the cemetery we last saw 17 minutes ago. But next door to the Pet Cemetery. Which means another batch of gravestones. We see a gravestone for a lobster eaten by mistake. Perhaps an omen of the coming of Pinchy in six seasons' time? And memorials for Fish Police, Capital Critters and Family Dog. We also see Bart, with a Turbo Nonsense record cover on his head, accidentally raising the human dead rather than any animals. And the zombies rampage through the town, albeit quite slowly, and with no interest in Homer due to his relative lack of brains. Though Flanders certainly gets got, not the Homer notices when he eventually guns Ned down. In the end, after a number of ancient celebrities are on the end of a serious boomsticking, Bart manages to reverse his spell using the same book from the same library. Which, I feel like I've made out to be a bit of a damp squib of an ending, but it's one of those ones that kind of loses sense in explanation. All you need to know is there's a number of zombie-based sketches and one-liners that are hilarious and tense at the same time. My verdict? Bad babysitting... No, sorry, that's a different episode. A great treehouse of horror with an all-timer in Clown Without Pity, another very strong entry with the zombies, and a perfectly serviceable spoof in King Homer. Tom, what did you reckon? Oh, I love it. It's one of the great ones because... You've got a veritable cornucopia of writers, of jokes, of stories, and everything works really, really well, which is probably why I've got 16 examples for memeable moments. Excellent. We'll be getting to memeable moments a bit quicker today, because I don't believe there are any memorable debuts in this episode, unless you count Zombie Shakespeare. Uh, And I don't count Zombie Shakespeare, which is worth remembering for the future. Uh, So let's skip straight to Did You Know, but it's a cornucopia. And let's start with the gravestones. Drexel's Class was a Fox sitcom that was cancelled in 1992 after one season. I can find absolutely nothing else notable about it other than it was another Fox show, and we do know how much The Simpsons love to bite the hand that feeds them. Richard Buckminster Fuller is an American architect and inventor whose creations include the geodesic dome, as mentioned in Arpu's song in Season 5, Episode 13, Homer and Arpu, plus various things with the word dimation in front of them, including a car, a house, and a method of sleeping. He was at least partially immortalised in song by Add to X on their album Avant Hard, which is brilliant. Uh-huh. For more about Add to X, listen to Tom's appearance on our friend Tim Worthington's podcast, Looks Unfamiliar. Indeed. Tom, do you have anything to add about uh, Buckminster Fuller while we're here? I do, I do. Now, like I said earlier, my background is in biochemistry, and Richard Buckminster Fuller gives his name to Buckminster Fullerenes, which are little carbon structures, most famous of which is carbon-60, otherwise known as a buckyball. And 
I don't know if the promise that I was taught about them ever materialised, but they were meant to be amazing superconductors, meant to be really good for delivering drugs, that sort of stuff. You, you, you put your molecule of the drug inside the buckyball and, and it would break apart wherever it was needed. But my main beef with Richard Buckminster Fuller is um, how long his name is. Uh, if if my name if my name was as long as Richard Buckminster Fuller and people started naming things after me, I'd rename myself to to to, to Smithers or something. <laughs> then the Buckyball would be known as the Smitherine, which, nice. would, which would be really funny. <laughs> Excellent. So then we have the Pet Cemetery, in which we have the gravestones of Fish Police, Capital Critters, and Family Dog. All attempts by major networks to compete with The Simpsons, all of which were cancelled in their first season. The first of those, I think, is pretty self-explanatory. The second features the rats and other vermin that live in the walls of the White House, whilst Family Dog was developed from a pilot written and directed by Brad Bird with music by Danny Elfman, and produced by Steven Spielberg and Tim Burton, would you believe? It still utterly flopped, because it had been delayed for two years. The original pilot had actually been aired before The Simpsons shorts began on The Tracy Ullman Show. How different things could have been. When Homer steps into Alfred Hitchcock's silhouette, he is actually fatter than the outline. (laughs) Oh, and that whole bit is based on the intro of the anthology series Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which ran from 1955 to 1965. The title of Clown Without Pity is a play on Town Without Pity, an unrelated Kirk Douglas movie that sounds pretty depressing, quite frankly, and also the Gene Pitney song title song. But for subject matter, yes, we're back to the Twilight Zone. Episode 126, Living Doll, Nothing to do with the Cliff Richard song of the same name, or at least I hope not. (laughs) It also features elements of Trilogy of Terror, a 1975 TV movie horror anthology that featured a segment with a cursed fetish doll, the Child's Play film franchise, and, in its depiction of the shopkeeper, even the 1984 film Gremlins. The King Homer segment is based on the 1933 film... Tugboat Annie, starring... Okay, okay, no. It's King Kong, of course, starring Faye Ray. Amongst those eaten by King Homer is Shirley Temple Black, singing her signature tune on the good ship Lollipop. Temple Black was a child star in the time of King Kong, who retired from film at age 22, and went on to sit on the boards of the Disney Corporation and Del Monte, among other companies, eventually going into the diplomatic services and becoming the United States ambassador to Ghana and then Czechoslovakia, as well as the US chief of protocol. There is probably a whole podcast worth of material there, so I'll move swiftly on. Potassium benzoate, (laughs) E number 212, is a food preservative that inhibits the growth of mould, yeast and certain bacteria. It is also used as the whistle in some fireworks. It has low acute toxicity upon oral and dermal exposure. That's good. <laughs> yeah, and since there's been a lot of biochemistry in this episode, my main beef with people who don't like things like potassium benzoate is that they're what I believe is called chemophobic. They just hear a long name, or well, potassium benzoate, or well, that sounds kind of scary, because the way potassium benzoate works as a preservative is that 
Um, if the pH is low enough in stuff like vinegar, then it dissociates and becomes benzoic acid. And benzoic acid is pretty good at killing um, various things that you want dead if you're trying to preserve food, the, the stuff you've just mentioned. Um, it can also turn into benzene uh, uh, under certain processes, but these are all in like minute levels, like not remotely harmful to hu- to humans. I, I, I think apples have... No, pears have tiny amounts of mercury in them, but we don't shy away from eating pears because of that, because the amount of it is so small. You know, the dose makes for poison, all that sort of stuff. Finally, Bard's incantations in the last story are all themed. Mm. So you have Cullen, Rayburn, Nars, Trebek, all game show hosts... Uh, Bill Cullen from The Price is Right, Gene Rayburn from Match Game, Jack Nars, hell of a name that, from Concentration, and Alex Trebek from Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. You then have Zabar's, Kresge, Caldor, Walmart, and those are all food shops mm-hmm. of varying sizes. You have Kolchak, Mannix, Banachek, and Dano, who are all 70s television detectives. All with their self-titled shows, except for Dano, who was featured in Hawaii Five-O. <laughs> okay. And finally, you have Trojan, Ramses, Magnum, Sheik. Fans of uh, prophylactic contraception will already have recognised that those are all American condom brands. Mm-hmm. So, Tom, hit us with that mighty list yes. of memeable moments. Now, some of them are better than others, and I will give my usual... Uh, spiel in that some people may think there's less, some people may think there's more. Most of them are sort of Vauxhall Conference, if you want a 90s football reference, but some of them are Premier League. So the first one, Behold Mighty Caesar in all his glory. And Homer's toga snags on a (laughs) nail and he ends up exposed. Then you've got uh, Grandpa with his gift to Bart. I didn't earn it, I don't need it, but if I miss one payment I'll raise hell. And then number three is the king, the emperor, take this object, but beware, it carries a terrible curse. That's bad. But it comes with a free frigate. That's good. The frigate is also cursed. That's bad. But you get your choice of topping. That's good. The toppings contain potassium benzoate, which I've said enough about already. I have seen that used in the last week to illustrate the end of a Grand Prix and the entire pride movement. That's how Mm. adaptable... That meme is. Yes, yes. It was It was to do with... Yeah, I saw that one. It was to do with how corporations have taken over Pride mm. and basically they stick a rainbow on their logo for about a month. And It's good that that sort of stuff is mainstream, but it's not exactly what Pride's meant to be about anyway. That was what I understood it to mean anyway. So, uh, then at number four, you've got Millhouse being yeeted, as the young people say. Whilst he's trying to play a game of pin the tail on the donkey, Homer opens the door very quickly and smacks Millhouse in the face. We did mention while we were watching that this is this is almost the start of the escalation into proper Millhouse. Um, yes. He's not had much of a personality up to this point, but he's about to become the loser of Springfield. He is, he is. He's, he's about to become the whipping boy, I believe. Number five is when Homer runs out of the bath past Patty and Selma and... And one of them says, there goes the last lingering thread of my heterosexuality. And then you have Homer when he's being attacked by the Krusty Doll. The doll's trying to kill me and the has been laughing at me. 
I wonder if it's the same toaster that goes on to be the time toaster in a later Treehouse of Horror. Ooh, that's an interesting one. Then you've got number seven, which is the repairman. Here's your problem. Someone set this thing to evil. That's used all the time. Then you've got number eight, which is a line that just had me laughing for a solid five minutes when I first heard it. Smithers going, I think women and semen don't mix. Then you've got the three of them talking about where they're going. I wish we were going to Candy Apple Island. What have they got there? Apes. But they're not so big. Uh, then you've got number 10, which is Mr. Burns's bathing beauty line. We wouldn't think of going without the bath. That is the bathing beauty. And then when you've got King Homer finally in New York, you have Barney standing up and saying, wow, look at the size of that platform. That's number 11. Then you have the zombies. And they all burst up from Willie's flower bed. Beforehand, he says, fair, pretty as a picture. But they all burst out and he goes, ah, zombies! Then he just does the flower bed again and says, fair, pretty as a picture again. Then you got a big one, which is number 13. Homer, did you barricade the door? Why? Oh, the zombies, no. <laughs> and then they get attacked. Then you've got another classic. Dad, you killed the zombie Flanders. He was a zombie. Then you've got number 15, we're nearly done. Excuse me, I'm John Smith. John Smith, 1882, my mistake. Then finally, 16, when they're all watching TV, glad that they haven't turned into zombies. And Homer says, man, fall down. Funny. And there we are, that's memorable moments. Excellent. Okay, well, that was one hell of an episode, so it only remains for me to say... Thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening me. Mm, absolutely. Galileo. Galileo. Galileo, the man called the father of modern science by Benjamin Disraeli. Now, one of the things that Galileo was famous for was his contributions to heliocentrism, the model of the solar system that puts the sun in the middle. There's this common idea that absolutely everyone on the planet thought that the Earth was in the centre of the universe until Nicholas Copernicus came along, and Galileo then had a run-in with the Catholic Church after he found evidence that supported Copernicus's ideas. Well, it isn't nearly as simple as that, as we will find out. In the time of Galileo, church doctrine was that the Earth was at the centre of the universe, and they supported the work of the astronomer Ptolemy, who wrote a treatise called the Amalgest around 150 AD. Ptolemy, in turn, studied the works of Aristotle, a philosopher who was born in ancient Greece, in 384 BCE. The works of Ptolemy and Aristotle were pretty much considered sacred and to question them bordered on the heretical. The concept of a heliocentric solar system goes back to the ancient Greeks. The astronomer Aristarchus of Samos is believed to be the first person to propose it in around 230 before Common Era, so you know, not long after Aristotle. Not only that, he was one of the first people to estimate the size of the Earth and the Moon. He concluded that the sun was six to seven times wider than the Earth. In actual fact, the sun is over 100 times wider than the Earth, so he was quite considerably out, but not bad for over 2,000 years ago. Aristarchus had followers, including Seleucius of Seleucia, who lived in the Seleucid Empire in around 190 BCE. Away from the Western world, the Indian astronomer Ayabhata proposed a system whereby the Earth rotated on its axis in around 500 Common Era, and there were many discussions on the nature of the solar system in the medieval Islamic world. However, heliocentric theory really took off with Nicholas Copernicus, born in 1473 in what is now Poland. 
According to a third-rate biography I found at a gas station, his life's work was represented by his book De Revolutionibus Orbium Coelestium, or On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres, in English. I do not envy you a lot of the pronunciation you're having to do in this one. Uh, no, no, it's mostly Latin and German and that sort of thing. The work was very long and technical, divided into six books. Its central tenet was that the sun was the centre of the solar system, and it gave detailed formulae for the prediction of the movement of wandering stars. You may be wondering why Copernicus wasn't persecuted for his book. Well, there simply wasn't time. Copernicus died in 1543 at the age of 70, just after The Revolutions was first published. On top of that, the book sold poorly at first, and when it did become popular, it was the preserve of academics. It was eventually censored in 1620 with a few corrections, in which it was stated that heliocentrism was a vague theory and not certain. One person who was unhappy with the church censorship was Galileo Galilei, the subject of this bit. He was born in Pisa in 1564. Do you know what his father Vincenzo did for a living? He was a lutenist. Ooh. Well, he was a wool trader by profession, but he played the lute really well. But he wasn't just a player, he studied the mathematics of it too. In 1581, with the help of his teenage son, he published Dialogo della Musica Antica e della Moderna, which translates to A Dialogue on Music Old and New. In it, he tried to persuade the reader that simple songs in the ancient Greek style were better than four or five voices singing different melodies, which was the style at the time. He also wrote a study on pitch and string tension, producing the first non-linear mathematical description of the natural phenomena. Unsurprisingly, he was a big influence on his son's early life and studies. Galileo himself grew up in Pisa and Florence, and he had a passion for making things, always coming up with little inventions, toys, gadgets, that kind of thing. Later, he was educated by monks of the Camaldolese order at Vallombrosa. The monastery was set at the foot of a hill just outside Florence, and it sounds absolutely idyllic. Apparently, the young Galileo wanted to stay there and become a monk, but his father decided that he was going to go to Pisa and study for a medical degree. He passed the entrance exam for the University of Pisa at the age of 17. While there, the young Galileo didn't care much for medicine, but was very interested in mathematics and natural philosophy. While he was 19, he noticed a chandelier swinging from a church roof. He watched it, timed each swing with his own pulse, and came to the conclusion that no matter how far the chandelier was swinging, the time it took to complete each swing was the same. In 1583, he invited his maths teacher, Ostilo Ricci, to the family home to persuade his father to let him abandon studying medicine. He eventually relented, and in 1585, Galileo left Pisa without completing his medical degree. Galileo was something of a polymath and also studied fine art. In fact, one of his first jobs after leaving his studies was working as an art tutor. However, mathematics remained his passion. During this time, he invented what he called the Little Balance, a device for measuring the specific gravity of materials. He also developed an irrigation pump that took just one horse to power it. He began to correspond with the Marquis Guidobaldo del Monte, a nobleman who patronised the sciences. Through him, Galileo came to the attention of Ferdinand I de Medici, and in 1589 he was appointed Chair of Mathematics in Pisa. Although it was the job he wanted, it didn't pay that well. He earned only 60 florins a year, whereas philosophy professors could earn over 10 times that. The established academics tended to look down on him, seeing him as a young upstart. 
They scoffed at his persistent questioning of everything, including the works of the great Aristotle. One postulate of Aristotle that Galileo tested was his idea of gravity. Aristotle stated that if you took two objects of different masses and dropped them from a height, the heavier one would accelerate faster and reach the ground first. To test this, the story goes that Galileo went to the top of the Leaning Tower of Pisa and dropped two cannonballs of different weights at the same time. To the surprise of all onlookers, the cannonballs reached the ground at the same time, disproving Aristotle's ideas. The establishment at the time would have found this almost heretical. In 1591, Vincenzo Galileo died, leaving Galileo to look after his younger brother Michelangelo. Michelangelo was a musician who tried to make a living out of it. Trying to make it as a professional musician was tough back then, and Michelangelo was always asking Galileo for money. From then on, he had a bit of a financial burden. Not long after that, he ended up making an enemy of the Medicis. He was approached by Giovanni de' Medici and asked to evaluate a machine he had designed to dredge the harbour of Livorno, a Tuscan port. Galileo took a look at the plans and came to the conclusion that the machine wouldn't work. That placed him in a bit of a quandary. I mean, do you tell the Medicis that the machine that one of them invented won't work and risk their ire, or assure them that it will work and look like a fool when it doesn't? Galileo went for the former and explained in detail why it wouldn't work in a public forum. This enraged the Medicis, but of course he was proved right when they tried to use it and it failed spectacularly. Under pressure from the Medicis, Galileo resigned from his post of Professor of Mathematics at the University of Pisa in 1592. However, his backer, the Marquis Guidobaldo del Monte, found him a different post, a professorship at the University of Padua, a city close to Venice. While there, Galileo flourished. His salary had tripled, so his money worries weren't nearly as bad. It's fair to say that Padua was much more liberal than Pisa, and he didn't have as much trouble with the established professors there. On top of that, his reputation preceded him, and his lectures were very popular, with the lecture halls filling up. Sometimes they had to be moved outside just so that everyone could hear him. Whilst at Padua, he applied his scientific knowledge to practical inventions, making himself even more money. In 1609, Galileo was on a trip to Venice, where he found out about the Dutch perspective glass, an invention of the spectacle maker Hans Lippershey. Galileo worked out to make his own version of the device the next day. He took a metal tube and put a convex lens at one end and a concave lens at the other. Thus, the Galilean telescope was born. And I think that's amazing, you, you know, about 400 years ago, to read about telescopes and go, yeah, I'll make my own one. <laughs> then I'll start grinding some lenses and I'll start making telescopes. It's amazing. <laughs> so over time, the telescopes developed by Galileo went from three times magnification to over 30 times. So he massively improved the existing telescopes as well. Now, the telescope that Galileo developed not only turned out to be great for scientific research, but it was also very profitable for him. He presented his invention to the Venetian Senate and told them that they could use his telescope to spot incoming enemy ships. The Doge, Leonardo Donato, was very impressed. Much vision, very telescope, wow! He exclaimed. <laughs> no, he didn't. Anyway, as a reward, Galileo was settled for life in his lectureship at the University of Padua, and his salary was doubled. With his telescope in hand, Galileo pointed it towards the heavens. 
Towards the end of 1609, he made a series of discoveries that still bear his name today. In November 1609, he turned his attention to the moon, and once again he contradicted Aristotle. Aristotle believed that the moon was a smooth sphere, whereas Galileo saw mountains and craters and a, and a rough surface. I've always found that to be a bit weird, because you can see the craters on the moon with the naked eye. It's, it's like, have you thought of just looking at it? <laughs> just to see that it's not a smooth sphere? Ah, anyway. He looked towards the planet Jupiter and saw four moons. Originally, he called them Cosimo's stars, after Cosimo II de' Medici, a man who he had tutored since he was a child. Remember, his spat with the Medicis was nearly 20 years ago. Following a suggestion by Cosimo, Galileo renamed them the Medician stars, honouring Cosimo and his three brothers. So one for each of them. We get their modern names from a German astronomer called Simon Marius, who observed them at roughly the same time as Galileo. Now, for centuries, everyone thought that Marius had plagiarised Galileo, but it turns out Marius got there first. After discussions with Johannes Kepler, he turned to Greek mythology and named them after the lovers of Zeus, Io, Europa, Ganymede and Callisto. Despite them being named by Marius, today we know them as the Galilean moons. But Galileo did not stop there. From September 1610, he began to use his telescope to track the planet Venus. He observed that, just like the moon, it had phases. There were times when it was full, waxing, waning, all that stuff. That raised an issue because under the geocentric Ptolemaic model of the solar system, that just wasn't possible. If the Earth was in the centre of the solar system, then Venus could only exhibit crescent and new phases. So towards the end of 1610, Galileo published his findings in a pamphlet called Sidereus Nuncius, or Starry Messenger. The pamphlet caused a big stir not only in the scientific world, but in the world of art as well. A painting of a flight into Egypt by the German artist Adam Elsheimer was inspired by it, and it's the first known picture to feature a naturalistic rendering of the night sky. The pamphlet was arguably the beginning of the Galileo affair, which saw the learned professor facing up to the might of the Catholic Church. Although the pamphlet itself did not explicitly claim the truth of Copernicus's heliocentric model, some of Galileo's revelations, including the imperfect nature of the moon, contradicted the long-held teachings of Aristotle that were backed by the Church. The tensions between Galileo and the Church bubbled on for a few years when he had another clash with the Medicis, in 1613, Christina of Lorraine, the mother of Grand Duke Cosimo II, was having dinner with Galileo when the issue of geocentrism came up. She asked Galileo to consider Joshua 10.13. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jeshar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. Galileo responded with, and you remember Matthew 21, 17. No, he didn't. He countered with the idea that the Bible was not a scientific textbook and that the findings of natural sciences should take place over interpretations of scripture. He also put his views in a letter which made it into the hands of his enemies. By this time, the Protestant Reformation was in full swing and the Catholic Church was very wary of any allegations of heresy. An inquisition was in effect, especially in and around Rome. Galileo had reason to be worried, 
as he would have been well aware of what happened to Giordano Bruno. Now, Bruno didn't just support Copernicanism, he believed in all sorts of things that were considered heretical at the time, including doubting the virginity of Mary and the belief in the plurality of worlds. That is, the belief in aliens, basically. His trial lasted for seven years and was overseen by the head of the Inquisition, Cardinal Bellarmine. Bellarmine demanded that Bruno recant his views. He refused to do so, and so was burnt at the stake in 1600. In 1615, a group of Dominican friars took Galileo's writings to the Inquisition in Rome and denounced Galileo as a heretic. Against the advice of his family, Galileo voluntarily went to Rome to defend himself, arriving there on February 26th, 1616. Cardinal Bellarmine, the man who burnt Giordano Bruno, was asked to review Galileo's work. Bellarmine had a rather odd compromised view on heliocentrism. He thought that it was fine to study it, so long as whoever did made it clear that it was just a hypothetical and not physically real. However, in 1616, the Inquisition put out a judgment on heliocentrism. They believed it was foolish and absurd, and formally heretical because it contradicted scripture. Because of this, Bellarmine told Galileo to stop even considering Copernicanism as a hypothetical. He was banned by the church from teaching or defending the doctrine. The church went even further and suspended publication of Copernicus's revolutions until it was corrected. With books banned and Galileo ordered by the church to not teach heliocentrism, the matter seemed settled. Then, in 1632, Galileo published a book called The Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems. Now, this book can be viewed as Galileo's attempt to get around the ban on teaching heliocentrism. The story is a conversation between three characters. There is Salviati, who argues for Copernicanism, Sagredo, who is neutral, and Simplicio, who argues for the geocentric Ptolemaic system. The book was initially released with the approval of the Inquisition, who tolerated it as it was presented as a conversation rather than anything overtly educational. However, when Pope Urban VIII got hold of the book, he was furious. Not only was he offended by the nature of Simplicio, believing the name of the character to be a double entendre for the Italian for simpleton, I mean, Simplicio, it's kind of obvious. Pretty cut and dried, that one. Yeah. <laughs> he was also convinced that the character was based on himself. Galileo was summoned back to Rome and put on trial. His sentence was issued on the 22nd of June, 1633. He was convicted of being vehemently suspect of heresy as he held the belief that the earth orbits the sun. His books were banned and he was sentenced to life imprisonment. His enemies were happy as he was forced to recant his beliefs on one knee in front of the Holy Office. He was 68 at this point and quite ill, so it was decided by the church that he could spend his sentence under house arrest. He started his sentence under the supervision of the Archbishop of Siena before being allowed to return to his villa near Florence. While there, he concentrated on writing what is considered to be his finest work, The Two New Sciences. In it, the characters found in the dialogue return to explain various concepts in physics. As he was banned from publishing by the Catholic Church, the manuscript was published in Amsterdam by the Elsevier family, who remain important and controversial science publishers to this day. As Galileo got older, his health continued to fail, and he lost the sight in both of his eyes. He finally died on January 8th, 1642, aged 77. 
The Grand Duke of Tuscany, Ferdinando II, wanted to bury him in the Basilica of Santa Croce, the main church in Florence. However, this idea was scrapped when Pope Urban VIII, the very one that thought Galileo was mocking him in the dialogue, found out. Instead, he was buried in a small chapel to the side of the building. In 1737, a monument to Galileo was put up and he was reburied in the main body of the basilica. During this process, three fingers and a tooth were removed from the remains. Why? I have no idea. But the fingers are on public display in the Galileo Museum in Florence, should you wish to see them. After Galileo died, the affair regarding his trial and imprisonment was largely forgotten. The blanket ban on Galileo's works was lifted in 1718, and the publication of a censored version of the dialogue was permitted by Pope Benedict XIV. In 1758, a general ban on works that put forward heliocentric views was lifted, but it wasn't until 1835 that the specific bans on the dialogue and Copernicus's The Revolutions were dropped. Over time, it became fairly obvious that Copernicus was right and Ptolemy was wrong. Although the Catholic Church didn't formally acknowledge this, Protestants used to use the Catholic Church's persecution of Galileo as a stick to beat them over the head with. As the Space Age dawned, the astronaut David Scott carried out a very quick experiment on falling bodies while on the moon during the Apollo 15 mission. He took with him a hammer and a feather. He held both of them up and dropped them at the same time. Because atmospheric resistance of the moon was negligible, the hammer and the feather hit the surface of the moon at the same time. This provided further evidence that Galileo was right and that the great Aristotle was wrong. Then, on October the 31st, 1992, two days after Treehouse of Fire 3 was first aired, Pope John Paul issued a formal statement of the Pontifical Academy of Sciences. In it, he stated that after a 13-year investigation, the Church had come to the conclusion that Galileo was right and that they had made a tragic error. It wasn't right to infer scientific truth from scripture, and there is a big difference between knowledge obtained through experimentation and revealed truth. In 2008, it was announced that a statue of Galileo would be put up in the Vatican as a fitting tribute to him. However, just a year later, these plans were shelved indefinitely, and to this day, it has yet to be built. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> so I then went off to see if I could see any Galileo in The Simpsons. Cursing that I'd wasted all the Pope appearances. <laughs> Just a few episodes ago. He features, Galileo that is, in the slideshow presented by Lisa in season 12, episode 16, Bye Bye Nerdy. Now I have a little bit of a um, reputation for defending later series episodes of The Simpsons. Bye Bye Nerdy is one of my absolute least favourite episodes of The Simpsons ever. It is, and this is no word of a lie, in my bottom ten out of 700-odd episodes. Do not watch it. And if you already have, do not watch it again. Galileo is also mentioned in Season 28, Episode 11, Pork and Burns, which I can't remember, when Bart thanks Galileo for inventing the telescope after using one to watch Skinner's car fill with squishy. Oh, that's so annoying. Because galileo didn't invent the telescope i mean he practically invented it because he took a design which worked but not very well and vastly improved it but he didn't invent it he refined the telescope mm. and on that revelation don't forget that you can find us at retrospectacles.org and on spotify apple Podcasts, and stitcher and you can follow us on twitter at underscore retrospectacles 
Email us at podcast at retrospectus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review any way you possibly can. Thanks for listening, and keep watching the skis. I mean, skies. (laughs) See you later, everyone. Good to be back. (laughs) 